Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me is my good buddy, Andrew Berkshire. Andrew, what's going on, man? Not much, man. Just uh, getting ready for the final tonight. Can't wait for this to start. Yeah, we're recording this. Uh, it's a Monday morning. Uh, got up nice and early, and we're going to do this, and we're hopefully going to get it out before the uh, game one puck drops so that it's still relevant because obviously everything we say here is going to wind up being proven horribly wrong as soon as the game actually starts. <laughs> we'll have to do the, the old Pierre Maguire and take both sides so that no matter what, we're right. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, let's... Uh, Let's, let's let's get into this. I wanted to try and actually, you know, everyone, uh, since we had a few days here, is, is banging out these previews, and um, I've seen a lot of good stuff, but hopefully this will be serve as a, as a definitive Stanley Cup final preview, because we're actually going to go pretty in-depth and try to cover it from all the uh, interesting and relevant angles, and I think that the natural starting point here is obviously um, the Penguins forward group versus the Predators blue line, which rightfully so is going to get a lot of the t- attention um and it's a lot of uh big names that'll be directly going head to head against each other so we'll actually be able to kind of get a little bit of a resolution and clarity as to uh which group is 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 more dominant and 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 more um just controlling their team's results and and I, i'm fascinated from your opinion like how do you think this thing is going to shake out because in the ottawa series we saw that Especially as it went along, I feel like when it, when the series moved to Ottawa for games three and four, Guy Boucher made a pretty concerted effort to get Carlson out there pretty much whenever Crosby's line was out at 5-on-5. Five five. And I think that the results were pretty good for the most part, like other than the fact that Crosby's goal, uh, Crosby's line wound up ultimately uh, scoring the game-winning goal in that second overtime. I think they had just one 5-on-5 five five goal in the six games prior to that. So... That 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 Carl Cinema thought unit did a pretty good job of slowing Crosby down at five on five. Um, how do you think that if you were running the Predators or or let's say you you and Peter Laviolette would do the same thing? What what, what do you well, how do you see that matchup shaking out in this series? Yeah, I mean I'm interested to see how he goes about it because uh, one of the things that Laviolette's mentioned throughout the playoffs is that he feels that Matthias Ekholm and PK Subban are much better against big physical forwards so it could be that he decides to put that uh that pairing against the malkin line because you know mal as much as crosby is you know basically unstoppable 
force of nature. He's not a huge physical guy. He can knock you down if he needs to, but his game is more about puck protection and and uh, winning battles along the boards, whereas Malkin is just like, you know, skate through the middle and try to plow through five people right. while stick handling and, you know, make every highlight reel in the history of humanity. So I wonder if they decide to go that way. But at the same time, you know, P.K. Subban has a pretty good history against Sidney Crosby. Uh, I'm not sure how great it is during the regular season, but in, in playoff series past, he's been great at frustrating him, shutting him down. So that might be something that they look into as well. And, you know, Subban's never had a player like Matthias Ekholm with him to shut down Sidney Crosby. So it's going to be... Yeah, a really interesting matchup. I wonder if they almost won't worry about which pairing gets which line so much as they'll try to get one of those two pairings out against those two lines at all times and just shelter the Matt Irwin, Yannick Weber pairing as much as they possibly can. Yeah. No, it's, it's I mean, it, listen, there's no real uh, right answer like Crosby and Malkin or, or regardless of what you do to them, they'll probably find a way to eventually break through and get theirs. So you're just trying to kind of limit the damage and get the lesser of two evils. I, I I, I agree on on the you know just in terms of uh, matching up physically and 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 dealing with the uh, the force of nature that Evgeny Malkin can be. It would make more sense that you'd use that Ekholm uh, Subban pairing. At the same time, um, I, I think you know like Ryan Ellis is is obviously not a, a very tall guy by any means, but I saw a handful of times in that series against the Ducks, especially like when he was matched up with Getzlaff's line, he was doing a perfectly fine job of sort of he he, he it, it's so funny because I. Um, I think now we're going to see smaller defensemen uh, start to get compared to Ryan Ellis a lot, and he's going to be sort of pointed to as the prototype of what you need to do to succeed in the NHL as a smaller guy. But it seems like just like how silly it's been when we've compared these guys to you know the bigger uh, bigger players, it's like uh, replicating his success is going to be so difficult because everything he does is just so unique. Like the way he just kind of uh, leverages uh, larger attackers and and just everything from the way he plays the puck to to the angle he takes is just is so unique that's why I love watching him play because he really sticks out he's just so different from a lot of these other players which are more cookie cutter as they've come up through the uh, through the junior ranks yeah Ellis is weird because like he's kind of the opposite of what you expect from a, an undersized defenseman right because most of the undersized defensemen you expect to be like you know a bit of a, a swift skater uh playmaking type who shies away from the physical play and uses stick checks more, whereas Ellis is just like, oh, if you come down my side, I'm going to try to destroy you. Right. Like, he's really physical for, for a small player and, like, surprisingly strong. And he's got that booming shot instead of uh, in- instead of the playmaking chops. Although he's, he's a decent playmaker, but he's definitely a much better shooter. Yes. Well, this is the thing with the Penguins, which for years now has been the case, is, like, you're trying to figure out when you're making a game plan for defending them. It's like... Uh, Crosby will probably get his regardless. So there's always been the argument, like you want to try and keep Evgeny Malkin as in check as you can, because all of a sudden, if if both him and Crosby are going full tilt at the same time, you're gonna have a really difficult time of competing with this team. So you're better off sort of devoting your resources to trying to kind of slow him down a little bit and just conceding that Crosby will will get his points and his goals. But at the same time, I mean, we did see that 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 Carlson Mathot did a pretty good job of slowing Crosby's unit down and I wonder if Nashville was what and Peter Lobby that were watching that series and wondering if that would be the smart approach as well to just use their top two guys to try and uh just shadow Crosby and then deal with deal with Malkin with uh, with the other guys I, I, I don't know I, I guess we'll see how it plays out as the series goes along 
Yeah, I think no matter what for Nashville, if they're going to win this series, they're going to need to see a lot more out of Yossi and Ellis than they did in the last two series. Uh, they created some good offense in those two series, but defensively they were a bit of a mess, uh, especially against the Ducks. They were really, really struggling, whereas uh, the Ekholm Subban pairing has been excelling to the point of like, I believe they're just under 70% of on-ice scoring chances right now, mm-hmm. which is insane after three rounds against the competition that they've faced. They've been hard-matched against... Taves, Tarasenko, and Getzlaf. Uh, I think they've played about 65% of each player's ice time head-to-head, which is nuts. So uh, I think they're going to have to see a lot more out of Yossi and Ellis. Um, I I think they need more from the bottom of their lineup, too. Craig Smith being back is huge for them at forward because they need every bit of offense that they can get out of their forward group with Ryan Johansson out. And especially, you know, Kevin Fiala's out as well. It's not looking too great at forward for for the Predators outside of Forsberg and uh, Arvidsson. Uh, I hesitate to say that that's where this uh, this series will be won. Yeah. And and listen, obviously this is our, these are a kind of small ba- small gains and small battles to be won, but I did see that at least just based on uh the practice reports and the lines they were using uh the past few days it, it looks like they're going to not play Cody McLeod to start this series, and they're going to realize that since the Penguins aren't really using any guy, that's probably going to be willing to to drop the gloves or, or uh, engage with McLeod. It makes more sense that they're going to use uh, as many skilled guys as they can. Not that you know guys like Freddie Goodrow and, and Harry Zolnerchuk are skilled guys by any means, but I guess it's a better alternative than playing Cody McLeod for those five to seven minutes that he's going to be out there. Yeah, and and it's really too bad that when he's got into the lineup, P.A. Parento has actually generated some good, like some good offense. He hasn't been able to complete anything, mm. but every game he's had either a crazy bad turnover in his own zone or been dummied in Corsi while playing with Cody McLeod, and has kind of kept him on the outside looking in because he's a guy who I think could kind of you know help turn the tables a little bit, and he hasn't really been given much of a chance, and it's it's a little bit unfortunate there. I know it's become a, a bit of a running joke with uh with my listeners on for the show, but I guarantee you that uh just looking ahead uh, this summer, either it's going to be a player tryout or it's going to be like the league minimum for one year. But some team is going to get PA Parento, and I'm going to be either writing a column or doing a podcast or tweeting about the fact that I love that deal for that team and that I think he's going to be a very useful player. So it's just uh we go through this dance every year with these guys with the Lee Stampniaks and 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 PA Parento and Brad Boys for a while, and it just goes on and on. Yeah, and you know he'll score his twenty goals, and everyone will say, "Oh, well, look, he did it again." And then a bunch of regular hockey people will say, "Oh, well, but how? How exactly did he look while he's doing that?" <laughs> like he, he's definitely one of those guys where you know there's that saw him bad uh, terminology where you see like a couple of bad plays, and you assume that's all the player is. Right. And you know he he gets results everywhere he goes. It, it, it's crazy to think how how much he struggles to find a consistent lineup spot. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that's unfortunate truth. Um, yeah, the past the past few days we've seen a lot of talk um, about you know for a while after Nashville advanced and beat the Ducks, uh, there was this like little pushback from the old school media that was like you know trying to bring PK Subban uh, down a level and, and and saying that you know he might be their fourth best defenseman and that um, you know Ruin Yossi for example is the guy that should be getting most of the credit and then we've seen a bit of a pushback like. I don't know. Let's let's actually 
try and rank those four guys. I understand it's very tough. They're all very good, and we don't want to slight any of them. But like, I assume that you, like myself, have PK Subban number one. Like, how would you go uh, with the next three guys beyond that and ranking them from from one one to four purely based on uh, not necessarily how they're used, but more so just how effective they've been and what you think of them as players. Yeah, I also have Subban number one, obviously. I actually have uh, Matthias Ekholm number two. I used to have Ellis number two, but I think Ekholm, as he's played with Subban, has hit like a, a higher level this season. So I have him at number two, Ellis number three, and I actually have Yossi number four. And, you know, it, people think that I'm being, you know, uh, mean to Yossi in doing that, but... I love Yossi's offense. I love his transition play. I don't think anyone in the league, uh, defense, like uh, in terms of defenseman, carries the puck as well as he does up the ice. But defensively, he is very bad. Like he yeah. is what people think that PK Subban is, or what Eric Carlson used to be. Uh, he is essentially a fringe defender. Like he puts up the same defensive numbers as like Yannick Weber, but he's so good once the puck is actually on his stick that he's able to compensate for that. And he's still, you know, essentially a number one defenseman on a lot of teams, but he's not a player that plays, you know, 200 feet. He, he's not what people say he is that way. Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly how he got that reputation. I'm guessing it's playing with Shea Weber for a couple seasons mm-hmm. and people, you know, equated the two as this like uh, dominating all world pairing. But they never really were, not by the numbers, not by the results, not by anything. Well, he puts up a lot of points, especially on the power play. And, and, and you know, just like the, basically the opposite of what you were saying about Pia Parento, like if you watch Roman Yossi on uh, the correct couple plays, you're going to be like, wow, this guy is like the best player on the ice. I can't believe he's capable of doing that both with the puck and with his with his, with his his feet. And then you just kind of trick yourself into thinking that that's the case all the time. And it's like you... That this is why we people like you and I use numbers because it's very easy sometimes for your eyes and your brain to trick yourself into believing that something is more important than other events that happen. But you know, in the grand scheme of things, you need to weigh all those things pretty as evenly as you can and not be biased about it. And um, there's clearly something wrong with 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 Yossi's defensive game. It's funny because you know he's a, a a magnificent skater he's one of the best skaters in the league but defensively when guys are attacking him at his blue line he's uh, incredibly poor at sort of just uh playing very conservatively and uh sagging back and not maintaining his gap control and i wonder how much of that is you know him not being able to do it and how much of it is you know coaching or what they're stressing like it's it's, it's interesting to me because you see guys like you know duncan keith and drew dowdy and chris letang and even pk suban who are really good skaters but actually use those use that skill on the defensive end as well to be aggressive and pressure uh oncoming att- puck carriers and yossi for whatever reason just doesn't seem comfortable doing that and i think that's a big issue for why his defensive numbers are as poor as they are yeah that and also he's probably the most aggressive pincher in the nhl in terms of yes. uh defensemen uh he actually puts up in terms of like scoring chances he puts up like third line numbers like third line scorer numbers at even strength, which is crazy for a defenseman. Like, defensemen overall don't get many scoring chances at even strength. And I think he generates about uh, one per 20, personally, which is really, really good for a defenseman. They just don't shoot from in there. And, you know, he, he's... how would, I'm trying to think of the word that people will uh, describe him, but, but he's like a high-stakes gambler. He's kind of like a riverboat right? gambler, yeah. It, that's what I was looking for, yes. exactly, Dimitri. Yes, there we go. That's, all, that's all I'm a broadcasting professional. 
Exactly, Mr. Forsberg, you've mm-hmm. got it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, that that's that's why I, I don't see you know the reputation for Yossi where where it comes from. Uh, it, I find it kind of frustrating to see you know the way that he plays and the way that PK Subban plays, and one of them is deemed risky and one is not. That's not a slight to Yossi. I still think he's a fantastic defenseman, but uh, I think he's the fourth best defenseman on that team. Well, I mean the fact that they're paying. Uh... Ellis, Ekholm, and Yossia combined like just over ten million for the next two seasons, and they're all like in that sort of peak, like mid to late twenties part of their career. Uh, is like the, the fact that we're arguing about this is the most uh, like first world problem equivalent that, that you could possibly have. Like these are all uh, amazing players that every team would obviously love to have, but it is interesting how the narrative can get spun sometimes, and and uh, how we discuss these players and. I don't know. It's it's tough. I I agree with you that I would have had Ellis ahead of Ekholm for that second slot there, and Ekholm has been uh, so remarkable to watch this postseason, particularly uh, offensively. Like you know, he he deserves a lot of credit for what him and Subban have done in terms of slowing down Getzlaff's line and Tarasenko's line and Taze's line throughout this postseason. But he's also been like one of the best power forwards I've seen in this playoffs, just in terms of when they've been in the offensive zone, his willingness to uh, activate and, and, and get, you know, just kind of try and force the puck towards the net and, and make these power moves. And it's been uh, pretty interesting to watch this sort of skill set that's really rounded into four for him, where I imagine that, you know, he didn't come into the NHL necessarily as a big, um, highly recruited prospect with a, with a large pedigree, but you could see how uh, scouts may have been intrigued with his various different skills. And it seems like he's, you know, finally putting it together here in his age 27 season. Yeah, whenever he drops that shoulder and starts driving the net, I'm like, where did this guy come from? Like, you could see the skating skill beforehand and some of the offensive instincts, but man, he's he's totally hit another stride here. And I, I do wonder if part of that is, you know, as good as, uh, like, people don't realize that Ryan Ellis and Matthias Ekholm have been really good for the last three or so years uh, when they've been playing together. They, they've been essentially a top pairing, uh, maybe an understated one, but you know, a, a good one. Right. And, you know, this year, maybe playing with a player like P.K. Subban, who, you know, takes a little bit more of those risks and no offense to Ryan Ellis is a little bit safer with the puck in terms of, you know, puck placement uh, allows Ekholm to shed his, his outer layer or whatever a little bit and, and go a little bit more for broke. And, you know, the results have been fantastic. And I, I can't think of anything else other than that for, you know, his age group, uh, showing this like extreme shift in offensive skill set. Well, you know what's interesting. I, I think I saw an interview with him uh, a few days ago where he was talking about how uh, you know on his way up in through the um, international junior ranks, he was he he fancied himself more of an offensive defenseman and he'd like to get creative with the puck and try to do stuff. But then when he came to the NHL, he sort of needed to play a certain way to fit in with uh, the NHL playing style and what coaches typically ask of their defensemen. And now he's finally sort of, um, you know, whether it's his own personal mentality and confidence or whether LaViolette has instructed him to do so or given him a longer leash, like it's pretty clear that he's flourishing now, that he's capable of taking some of these, uh, you know, higher danger chances and really just trying to force the issue. And we do see that sometimes with defensemen where uh, you, you can be a little frustrated with how they're always making the conservative play or, or, or not trying to do anything too too risky and then all of a sudden maybe in their in third fourth fifth year or, or you know if, if they start keep playing under the same coach and, and get a bit more uh, of a rapport going with them all of a sudden they try to open it up a little bit and actually work so it's kind of cool to see that it's worked out that way for him 
Yeah, absolutely. What, what do you think about the the special team situation? Because I was looking into it, and in terms of like uh, scoring chances and you know successful failed plays, uh, shot differential stuff like that, it seems like the same dichotomy between forward and defensive groups that exists at even strength exists on special teams, where you know the Penguins have this killer power play that has been especially hot against the Ottawa Senators. And the Predators' power play is kind of so-so, not really generating much. And then the Predators' penalty kill is ridiculously good at uh, denying chances. Mm-hmm. And the Penguins is a little bit more porous. Do you find that interesting that like, the team with the good forwards has this great power play and the team with the great defenseman has this great penalty kill? Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense just purely from watching them, like especially uh, in that Senators series. I thought that while we mentioned that Crosby was pretty quiet at 5-1-5 and the Senators did a good job of slowing him down, he was... Uh, he was a force on the power play, like down low. It's it's just remarkable seeing him operate where he's using all the angles and just kind of doing this like little. Just it, it, it's what makes Sidney Crosby just the greatest, in my opinion, because he does all these little things that if you're not necessarily watching very closely, you wouldn't even uh, realize it's happening. But then you kind of start to piece it together and you realize why he is as effective as he is. And I thought a great example of that was it was the game they were getting blown out. I guess game three, I believe, in Ottawa and. They were down like five nothing, and it was a meaningless power play at the end of the game. And he's in front of the net, and in the very last second, he like does this little kind of stick tap where he just lifts Mathot's stick up for a second because Mathot was looking the other way, and he puts his stick down instead and just taps it in for an easy goal. And it was obviously a meaningless one that didn't change the outcome of the game, but it was just like small little stuff like that around the net that he does better than anyone else, which makes sense why their power play is as effective as it is and why he is as productive as he is. Yeah, it's that little attention to detail that always gets me with Sidney Crosby. And sometimes you can't even see it in like the original play. You need to wait for the replays to, to fully appreciate Sidney yep. Crosby. It's like uh, you almost need slow motion to fully understand all the stuff that he's able to do. Like, do you remember when there was a lot of focus on the way that he would uh, angle both of his the toes of his skates outward and kind of like skate in a curve around players yep. while handling the puck? Like that kind of stuff, that little stuff that nobody else really is able to pull off. That's why, like, uh, whenever we talk about players being great skaters, you know, like, the most uh, attention is focused always on speed. But the edge work of guys like P.K. Subban and Sidney Crosby is, you know, that next level. Uh, I don't think P.K. Subban is anywhere close to as fast a skater as, like, Roman Yossi is. But he's probably a better technical skater, which is, you know, that edge work that allows him to win battles along the boards or just get to the to the puck a fraction of a second quicker than somebody else. He knows when to use it. Uh, same thing goes with Sidney Crosby on the forecheck. And that's why I think the matchup between those two specifically might be so interesting in this series. Yeah. No, it's 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 fascinating. I um I don't know, like what do you what do you make of Nashville's uh of Nashville's power play struggles just in terms of uh it, you know, you you'd think especially while they were healthy that they'd have the you know the offensive firepower and the pieces to be a productive unit, but then it just raises questions for me about uh, special teams in general, about how much of it is actually the players and, and the weapons you have and how much of it is sort of tactical stuff and putting guys in the right places and, and, and finding the right kind of just pushing the right buttons. And I just wonder how much of that is going on here with the, with the Predators. Yeah, I, I wonder if maybe the worst thing that could have happened to them in terms of their power play was what happened in the St. Louis series where the, the Blues just really focused on taking away the net front and the Predators were okay with that, and they were still, you know, shooting bombs into the upper part of the net and beating Jake Allen all series. 
So they were they got very complacent and started shooting basically only from their defensemen on the power play, and that's kind of made them extremely un- ineffective now. And, and the Ducks basically were a lot better at defending those shots than, than the Blues were, and uh, I would say John Gibson stopped a higher percentage of them as well. Uh, I feel like they've got to be able to take advantage of those defensemen and how much they stretch teams out and work it down low. Uh, losing Ryan Johansson hurts because he's like their number one playmaker, but you've got Philippe Forsberg and Victor Arvidsson in near the net front there. Those are two guys. It's hard to get better than those guys. You know, like yeah. as long as you can get them the puck, they're going to get a chance. So, so they've got to be able to push closer to the net. I, I do think that as much as I like Roman Yossi uh, offensively, he has had a, a few moments in the last series against the Ducks where he just kind of completely ignored his teammates and decided that he had to do something himself, and he made a bunch of really bad plays in the power play. Mm. I do like the Subban-Ellis pairing on the power play a lot more than I like the Ekholm-Yossi pairing. I, I think they are better puck distributors to get the puck down low, whereas Yossi kind of likes to skate the entire blue line and find lanes for his own shot instead of finding players closer down to the net. Whereas I think, you know, Subban, maybe partly because of his back injury, hasn't been shooting as much. So he's trying to, instead of, you know, throwing bombs at the net, trying to get passes into the slot. Yeah, yeah, and and, and Subban's decision-making on the power play has really stuck out to me. I, I think it was, you know, there was one goal in particular late in that series against the St. Louis Blues where, you know, he they were playing like a little bit of a cat and mouse game, giving it back and forth at the point, and then he made this like one quick one touch pass before the defense could even adjust to. I forget who it was. It was one of the forwards who was just like out by the net. It might have been James Neal just for an easy tap in, and that's sort of the 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 quick kind of decision making and and finesse passing that you that you sometimes need rather than just uh, you know some of these teams opt way too often for just like they're catering their entire player power play around to just loading up a big bomb from the point and considering the extra space you have and and the numbers advantage obviously it seems like that's not the most optimal way to operate your power play yeah absolutely and here here's just a stat that i'll throw out for you that you can tell me if you find interesting uh pk suban has completed more passes to the slot more than double as many passes to the slot as any other defenseman on the power play uh ekholm has four ellis has four yossi has four and suban has nine mm. so that's you know looking at even like you know the the yossi Ellis pairing or Yossi Ekholm pairing on the power play have completed fewer passes of the slot than PK has himself. So like that's a bit of a illustration of what's going on when those two pairings are on the ice. Yeah. I'm kind of curious. So, you know, it's always fun to think ahead a little bit, especially for, for people in, in our position, because, you know, it, it, especially coming up here in the next couple of weeks, there's going to be a, so much talk and, and content about uh, the expansion draft and, and the draft itself and free agency. And I wonder, um, where the predators do go from here it's an interesting question because they're in pretty good shape just in terms of their cap and and the and the assets that they have and i wonder if this would be the optimal time regardless of the result here unless Roman Yossi just completely craps the bed and has a terrible series whether they'd be able to kind of trade him in for some very very uh intriguing pieces that would make their team better just because they do have this uh wealth of talent on the blue line and they're going to get healthier forward, but I still feel like they could probably cash in Yossi for a really intriguing uh, young, cheap forward that would possibly make their team better. Or, or would you just kind of run it back and just and just bring all these players back and just try to go from there? Oh, man, that's so tough. I, I've seen a few people float the idea that uh, trading Yossi at this time would be great. Uh, I kind of 
agree in principle that you know his value is never going to get any higher than it is right now. But at the same time, even if, say, Roman Yossi were an unrestricted free agent right now, he would probably get a lot more than this, but I think he's probably a six, six and a half million dollar player, and he's signed for so much less than that. So you'd have to find a player who has that same value with that same kind of cap hit attached to it. And I'm trying to look around, and the funny thing that stands out to me is like, what if they traded him for Max Pacioretty? <laughs> It's like Subban and Pacioretty back together again. Bandits back at it. Oh, man. Who would the Canadians fans hate on then? That, that's uh, Galchenyuk. Yeah, it's oh, easy. yeah, easy choice. Um, yeah, it seems like there's nothing holding that trade up from happening. Um, no, uh, listen, I it, it's tough because I do agree also that, you know, that just in terms of a value-added perspective or, or sort of a, a cost-benefit, like you'd probably uh, be able to get a lot for Yossi and then replace his minutes fairly well with either in-house options or guys for cheaper than, than, than the alternative. But at the same time, he is only making $4 million for the next three seasons each. And I, while I agree that he wouldn't necessarily get that much more in free agency, there's also this talk that Cam Fowler is going to be getting like $8 million a year or seven, seven plus at least. Uh, and this extension that he seems to be, uh, getting from the ducks in here in the next few weeks and i don't know the defense market is always so weird to me like sometimes these guys just get so overvalued by gms where they just look at either the points or or individual talents and just think well we need you know puck moving defensemen and then all of a sudden they somehow overrated at times so i just wonder like if roman yossi actually would that get that much or whether he if he was a free agent in this alternate universe like i he might just get overpaid by a crazy amount by some team Oh yeah, I, I for sure think he would get more than the the number I threw out there. I was just thinking like, what is his intrinsic value right, to right. a team, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I feel like the Predators are probably just going to keep their four defensemen and protect four four D and four forwards because you know you can only lose one player, right? And as long as you can, pro- uh, I don't think they have to protect. Uh, someone said they didn't have to protect Fiala because he hasn't played his full mm-hmm. uh, yeah, three years or whatever. Exempt, yep. Yeah, so you you can protect Forsberg, you can protect Johansson, you can protect Arvidsson, and then you can choose either James Neal or Craig Smith, right? Or I guess Colin Wilson, whichever they prefer. Mm-hmm. So they're probably going to end up use, losing a guy like uh, Craig Smith or uh, Kelly Yarncroc, maybe Colton Sissons. That sucks, but it's not a huge hit. And if they do lose a forward that they really like, then maybe they can look after the draft at, at trading one of their defensemen and... You know, maybe then once everything's over, they can get more when the gun's not to their head. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they're listen. These are all uh, good problems to have, and they're sitting sitting pretty. Like I think that it'd be I'd be pretty hard pressed to think of uh, specific events that would have to happen for me not to be high on them heading into next year. Like there'd have to be some sort of a catastrophic injury or, or, or some just bizarre trade. Like I don't know if they traded PK Subban for Shea Weber or something. I think that I'd be pretty down <laughs> on this team. Wouldn't wouldn't that be an interesting trade back? You know, like I, I know everybody talks about how like at, at one point maybe the Predators will reacquire Shea Weber just to avoid the the recapture clause or whatever. But it, it's it's an interesting situation to see how this how this has changed so much in one year. You know, like I, I know that judging by team success is not exactly something that we like to do as analysts, but for the people who do that. 
all of a sudden team success no longer matters for this trade, you know, like all of a sudden it's not a big deal. And I find it funny and I've brought this up on Twitter a few times that, you know, the excuse is like, oh, PK Subban is just part of the best decor in hockey. That was never something that was brought up with Shea Weber before. You know, like Shea Weber was the undisputed number one on a good defensive core for his whole career. And, you know, at, at times it wasn't as good as it is right now. But Shea Weber's never had a partner in Nashville who wasn't close to his same level in terms of eliteness, whether it was Roman Yossi or Ryan Suter. And that was never really brought up as something that drove his career. And, you know, the if we're talking about team success as well, the only team success that Shea Weber has ever had has been with Team Canada, where he's surrounded by elite players. So it, it, it's tough for me to see that kind of stuff. And, you know, the, these uh, so-called analysts who usually go by team success now all of a sudden ignore it because the player that they don't want to buy into is having it. Yeah, I feel like we could talk about this for another like five hours here. Like, but uh, true, it's uh, yeah. Let's just let's let's, let's move on. PK Subban's the best. Um, okay, uh, <laughs> the, let's talk about the Penguins a little bit here. And um, when I was looking, I was looking at something earlier, and I wanted to run this by you. So I was looking at the line mates Crosby's played with over the years, and uh, in his early years, especially you know in like two thousand seven, two thousand eight he was playing quite a bit with Evgeny Malkin at five on five. I think they played like 400 minutes or something together in 2007, 2008, which is a, a pretty decent amount. And since then though, I mean, it's been a lot of, you know, one year there was a lot of Ryan Malone and then there was last legs, Bill Guerin. And then there was a few years there with Pascal Dupuis and Chris Kunitz. And then there was David Perron and a little Patrick Hornquist cameo. And I, I was just thinking like, is Jake Gensel, uh, possibly the most like just purely offensively talented or gifted player that Crosby's played with on a regular basis in in years or maybe ever uh like I, I was just I was racking my head trying to think of all these guys and whether just you know not as not necessarily as an all-around player just purely in terms of his offensive skill set is he like the most talented guy Crosby's played with in a while now man that's interesting because it's tough to know right because we we've seen so little of him comparatively right. we, we don't know if this is you know, a, a great year combined with playing with Crosby or if he, he really is this good. I mean, it's hard. Like, you look at some of the plays that he does with the puck, especially in close to the net, and, like, man, the, the stick skills are absolutely there. Uh, the the scoring instincts are absolutely there. He, he looks like a, a dynamite player. But then I look at, you know, Connor Sheary this year put up some of the best five-on-five numbers in the last, like, five years of hockey. Right. But... You look at Connor Sheary's wow, he's with and without Crosby, and his offensive statistics literally are 50% of what he does with Crosby without him. Yep. So like, I wonder, you know, with Jake Gensel, if we would see the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, you look at Crosby's old line of Chris Kunitz and Pascal Dupuis, and, you know, Chris Kunitz, when he wasn't playing with Crosby, was playing with Ryan Getzlaff, who was also, you know, one of the league's best playmakers, uh, one of the league's best offensive uh, drivers at even strength. And he wasn't anywhere near where he was with Crosby. Pascal Dupuis went from, you know, a really good third liner to I think he was like top five in points per 60 for like four years with Sidney Crosby, which is completely nuts. So I, I wonder if like when his career is over, I'd love to do a big career retrospective with Crosby and get like with or without offensive statistics for all of his line mates and see how big of an impact he's actually had. Because, man, just from looking through it on, like, a cursory basis, he looks like 
such a huge difference maker offensively, like more than we would have ever imagined when he was drafted. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. And I listen, I don't want to uh, be like super reactionary. I mean, Jake Ensel's played like, what, under 60 combined NHL games, both in the regular season and in the postseason. So we still don't necessarily know what type of player he is. Obviously, the fact that he was uh, comfortably over a point a game at both the NCAA level and at the AHL level uh, speaks well for his future. And he's looked very, very good uh, in in the limited time we've seen him in the NHL. But, you know, it, it's fascinating because Malkin's sort of the same way where he hasn't necessarily had the same effect. But you look at the luxury the Penguins have had of just how they've who they've been able to put next to both Malkin and Crosby and just make it work. I remember a few years ago, someone put together like a comprehensive list of everyone that had taken had taken turns on on Evgeny Malkin's wings, and it was just a hilarious combination of you know it was it was Ponikarovsky and it was Tyler Kennedy, and it was just like all these guys like Colby Armstrong. You just go on down the line, and just like, and they were all reasonably productive, and it just that's that's the whole thing with the, with the Penguins, right? Like they have they've drafted really well, they've supplemented, especially in the past few years, uh, Crosby and Malkin with a bunch of interesting young kind of nifty forward wingers that can move up and down the lineup and can contribute and do various things but at the end of the day having those two uh central pillars to build around is what's made this team uh the franchise that they've been for the past decade or so yeah i think we we talk a lot in hockey media about the way that the chicago blackhawks have been able to kind of plug and play with a lot of their depth guys the pittsburgh penguins are the same you know i think both teams you know the penguins had a bit of a lull in in where in their you know, competitive years where they struggled a little bit and made some questionable decisions, but they both kind of hit on the same thing, which was like you get your core of elite players and then you just rotate the cast around that and continually try to get guys who are, you know, in their primes or close to it on the lines with those elite players. And and I think that generally, you know, they, they usually put the better wingers with Malkin, whether it's uh, James Neal or Patrick Hornquist or uh, Phil Kessel and, and uh, Sidney Crosby is just like, hey, Sid, uh, elevate these grinders, you know, for the most part. And he does. So that gives them tremendous flexibility. But, man, what a, what a amazing, you know, attention to detail by the Blackhawks and the Penguins to recognize that as long as you have these star players, you can kind of just bring in decently talented guys, wait until they're uh, overestimated in the hockey market, let them go, and then bring in the next round. And I think all credit goes to those teams because you still see, I would say probably 20 to 25 teams in the league still don't get that about their depth players. You know, like the LA Kings were a fantastic team, but they fell in love with their depth guys. And that's, you know, the biggest sin in hockey. Well, yeah, that's, that's, and this is like the argument that I always get in with uh, with people on, on, on Twitter, especially it's like, when a team signs uh, a third or fourth line guy for like a four-year deal or a five-year deal, and um, you know, and and the the actual cap figure isn't that big, and they're like, well, this player is you know perfectly worth it, and you know, you're paying him one point eight million dollars next season, and it's like, yeah, but you're missing the point because you're you're just you're locking yourself up to all of this unnecessary risk where if the player's uh, production declines or if he gets injured or something unforeseen happens all of a sudden you're just latched onto that player for no reason when 
there's a bunch of other guys either floating around the league or just waiting in the AHL to be called up. And, and that's ultimately like the crux of the argument, which is why you don't want to get, as you mentioned, fall in love with your depth players just because it's, it's ultimately just an unnecessary risk you're taking on as a GM. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you're looking at a second line forward or even like a third line center, if something happens to that player where they drop down a notch, you know, there's somewhere in the lineup that you can still fit them. You know, you can drop down a line. If a fourth line guy or a, a depth forward gets injured and they lose a step or, you know, age hits at the wrong time, there's nowhere for them to go. So if they have a multi-year, multi-million dollar contract, you're kind of stuck. It's really hard to move those guys. And this is why, like, I remember the first year that Bergevin took over, he made uh, a lot of really great contract signings. He signed Carey Price to a six-year deal for probably under market value because the Canadians had just had a terrible year. Uh, same with Max Pacioretty. His contract is ridiculous. Mark Bergevin signed that. So everyone was like, oh, man, this guy's a genius. Then he turned around and signed Brandon Prust and Travis Moen to two four-year contracts worth uh, $2.5 million and I think just under $2 million. And a lot of people were like, oh, yeah, great character guys. And I was like, you don't sign guys like that. Like, Brandon Press was good for two years, and then he completely dropped off uh, due to injuries to his shoulder. To Like, his shoulder was dislocating every couple games. His ankles were hurting. Uh, Travis Moen just got way too old and too slow. I feel like two years is the max you can go with those guys, especially once they hit like mid twenties. Yeah, I mean this is the this is the Kenny Holland special. I mean Luke Lindenning is in the books until like twenty twenty one, and it's like what? Like wow! Like like just it makes no like obviously he's in his late twenties now, and he's not even. You can make the argument that he shouldn't even be in the NHL to begin with. Like I guess he's a serviceable fourth liner, but it just like. What like who like where's Luke Lindenning go if you don't give him this four or five year contract? Like is someone else gonna give him that money? Like I just don't understand. Like if they want to, like great that uh, that 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 just let them take that bullet for you. Like I don't I just don't understand the the rationale that comes with some of these moves. Yeah, it's it's hard to figure out. I think that hockey, as much as you know, it's been advancing in the last couple of years. It's still a little too obsessed with you know, uh, character and chemistry and and all that and quote-unquote leadership. And, you know, I've talked to a few former players about this, uh, you know, our, our good friend Mike Johnson as well, mm-hmm. uh, about what makes leadership and what makes, you know, teams have good chemistry together. And the answer is pretty much always the same from guys who look back on their careers and, you know, with the with the – Clear, clear eyes, you know, like yep. not trying to BS and talk to anybody, uh, any managers or anything like that, or coaches. They say the best teams are like in terms of leadership and chemistry in that locker room are teams that have won together. Mm-hmm. And it's not the other way around. It's not that you have that chemistry and therefore you win. It's that you win together and that brings you tighter. And whether it's actually winning a Stanley Cup or going to the conference finals and going out it's that success together that breeds that uh, kinship in a way. And it's not the other way around. And I feel like teams are constantly chasing the culture instead of chasing the winning. And you saw that with uh, Mark Bergman trading for Andrew Shaw, who's a fine player, but probably not worth two second round picks, including the one that allowed the Chicago Blackhawks to draft to brink it, which is, you know, you got to just shake your head at that. But because like, if they had to bring it uh, outside of Sergachev, he's probably their top prospect right now. So yes. that's that's kind of brutal. 
Yeah, well, so just keeping uh, the discussion going about, you know, from the Penguins' perspective, uh, we haven't talked much about their own blue line, and uh, understandably so. It helps that uh, either Justin Schultz came back for the Game 7 and Trevor Daly's been healthy for a while now, and so they have some guys that can actually help move the puck, but I'm fascinated to see how... Uh, how, how, how they'll approach uh, their breakouts in this series and how um, the Predators will approach defensively in terms of their forecheck because, you know, a big story of that Eastern Conference final was what Ottawa and Guy Boucher were doing with their 1-3-1 through, through the neutral zone. And while the Predators aren't going to run that sort of system, they did show at times throughout uh, the first three rounds, whether it was against the Blackhawks when they took the lead or, or later in the series against the Ducks after they lost Ryan Johansson, that they could also play this sort of just suffocating uh, neutral zone style. They would just they would just kind of wait back a bit and all of a sudden wait for you to make a mistake or force a play, and then they would just instantly counter and go back the other way. And the, for the Penguins, like what made them so successful last year was just this ability to play fast and constantly keep the puck moving around. And and you know Chris Letang being able to play like you know, almost thirty minutes a night was such a big part of that. And I wonder whether they're going to get themselves into trouble this series with a lot of those neutral zone turnovers that the Predators might be able to take advantage of better than the, the Senators were. Yeah, it, it's a weird situation for these two teams because, you know, in, in terms of exiting the defensive zone and defensive zone structure, uh, neither of these teams are afraid to dump the puck out. Mm-hmm. It's weird because, you know, especially with Latang in the lineup, they're two fairly mobile uh, D groups uh, outside of like Mark Streit who's, you know, 90 years old. Yes. but uh, And Ron Hainsey, I guess, is the same. But I, I like Mark Stratt. I think he's a good player still. Mm-hmm. Uh, less so for Hainsey. But uh, neither team is afraid of dumping the puck out from their D. Uh, neither team likes to dump it out from their forwards. And I feel like that's a conscious thing. I, I think Mike Sullivan has talked about it before. I talked to Bill West about it, that when, when they do it, get into a situation where they're going to dump the puck off the glass and out, they want someone there to be able to recover it. And that makes a lot of sense, right? So you don't want to stretch your forwards out too much, but if you've got a situation where that forward can recover that puck, you're in a much better position than just sending a puck to the other team in the neutral zone just to come back right at you. So, so that's an interesting thing to watch in this series, I think, because the Penguins defensive core doesn't have the mobility or the skill to move the puck out with control against a tough forecheck uh, that they would if they had Chris Letang. Right. Uh, he was like far and away their best controlled exit guy. Uh, you know, whereas the Predators uh, with Roman Yossi on the ice, they like to skate it out. And with P.K. Subban on the ice, they like to pass it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Subban has a crazy stat in the playoffs this year where uh, his stretch passes, he's completing 80% of them, where like the league average is like, 40 to 35 percent like it's really low so i think that's something to watch for if pittsburgh isn't careful uh nashville could be extremely dangerous on the counterattack. but i look at how these teams have played in the playoffs as well and i wonder if pittsburgh can hang in terms of even strength play because they've done a good job controlling like high danger scoring chances but that's that's about it in terms of shots they've been terrible this these playoffs like even against ottawa they weren't great at controlling shot attempts at even strength even if they were getting a lot of their shots through so so i wonder against a team that has been extremely good at it if uh, the even strength play is extremely lopsided 
Yeah, but wait, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like, especially in that Duck series, uh, it was a little bit of the case, uh, similar case with the Predators as well, where they weren't necessarily dominating the just general shot attempts, but, you know, in terms of the high danger stuff and all the scoring chances, they were doing very well. Wasn't wasn't that the case as well? I'd, I'd have to look into it, but uh, you might be right in the, in that, especially because I, I believe that the Ducks played from be, from uh, from with, with the lead a lot too, because they scored a, a lot of goals early on where the predators uh especially in first periods in the in the series the predators owned them like crazy huge shot advantage and then they'd end up down one nothing after the first and have to come back so in terms of score adjusted numbers it, it might be in favor of the ducks i'm not entirely sure yeah. Oh, that was a good point. Uh, definitely worth monitoring and watching in terms of the, uh, you know, dumping the puck out of the zone because I do think that uh, sometimes like the context or the way, the manner in which you accomplish it is overlooked by people because it's not, obviously you'd ideally like to have a crisp tape to tape pass every single time out of your zone in an ideal world, but unfortunately that's really tough to do, especially as you move uh move deeper into the playoffs and start playing against better competition and i think that you know the Pred- the penguins did this amazingly well last year less so this season with all the injuries and the predators have done it very well throughout these these playoffs and it's when they dump it out like that it's it's they they, they seem to kind of do there's there's a method behind the madness where or method to the madness where they dump it a bit higher to give their forwards a chance to get there and they kind of like dump it in the defenseman's skates or like kind of close to him where all of a sudden he has to panic and make a quick decision and and the forward is already on him and this sort of frantic pace that they get into benefits them because of all the undersized uh, speedy guys that they have especially on the wing and I wonder how the Penguins blue line is going to be able to deal with that because you know, the Ducks weren't a great uh, litmus test for this because most of the defensemen were very mobile guys that could keep up. But I remember like watching the series against the Blackhawks pretty much every time Johnny Oduya or uh, Brent Seabrook were out there, guys like Arvidsson were just absolutely roasting them uh, out wide when they were coming into the zone. And, I, you know, the Penguins have been relying so much on that Dumoulin, Ron Hainsey pairing this postseason, and I think that that could go very bad for them. You know, the, the Predators do have injuries up front, and it might sap uh, some of their ability to convert some of these chances, but I think that they might be able to use their speed on the wing with guys like Pontus, Pontus Alberg and, and, and Arvidsson to create a higher volume of these chances, which really could give the Penguins fits, especially if Murray's not on top of his game. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like this is a situation where a, a guy like Roman Yossi, who loves to join the rush, might be at a bigger ed- advantage than he was against uh, the Ducks. Because like, if any team in the league has a defense that's arguably as good as the Predators, it's probably the Ducks, right? And, you know, even if uh, Lindholm and Vattenen both had injuries that they were nursing, mm-hmm. uh, they were f- freaking fantastic in that series. Yep. You know, that was a crazy impressive series from both teams. I, I just came away with so much respect for for how complete both teams were. But uh, the, the Penguins don't have that uh, on defense. So I wonder if a rushing defenseman like Yossi could end up being, you know, a huge difference maker in this series because it's it's a little bit more unexpected and harder to defend when you have four guys coming at you instead of three. And especially if a defenseman is leading the rush or or maybe the late guy joining the rush it's it's another dynamic that you have to to deal with and you know they had to deal with that with eric carlson but at the same time when carlson wasn't on the ice they didn't have to face pk suban and matthias ekholm you know so 
there's no breaks against Nashville. And it, the same thing goes for Nashville, whereas, you know, they had Ryan Getzlaff to deal with and then Ryan Kessler, who, you know, everybody loves Ryan Kessler in the playoffs because he's the ultimate line stepper, but uh, he doesn't generate a lot of offense. And his line was mostly through Silverberg for offense. So in terms of up the middle, it was just Ryan Getzlaff, that's it, uh, against the... Uh, St. Louis Blues, it was mostly the Tarasenko line that was trying to produce offense, and the rest of the lines kind of struggled. Against the Blackhawks, you know, you have Taves and Kane, but the Blackhawks were out pretty quick, so there wasn't much time for both lines to get going at once. With Crosby and Malkin, again, there are no breaks. So I I guess the only difference that I would see uh, in terms of matchup between these two teams is, I guess with Subban and Yossi anchoring the two pairings, you've got you know, possibly 50 minutes a night where one of those two pairings is on. If they really want to roll them, uh, like ride them hard in the Stanley Cup final, whereas, you know, Malkin and Crosby are probably going to play 40 to 42 minutes a night. So you've got that extra eight to nine minutes a night where your best advantage is on and their best advantage is not. And maybe that's where it twists, but I feel like that advantage might be erased when it comes to goaltending. Well, that's the elephant in the room here, and we've spent 50 minutes now previewing this series and trying to cover it from all these different angles, but at the end of the day, like this preview really could have been uh, summed up in like a 60-second soundbite where we just like, well, whichever team's goalie stops more pucks is going to win this series, and that's always the case, but it's like in, in, in previewing this series, so much of it for the Predators will be, uh, you know, Pecorino doesn't necessarily need to keep stopping uh, over 94% of the shots he faces, but if he reverts back to that old Pecorino that we've been uh, worried about throughout this season, that could be like the big X factor here, especially if the Penguins are able to convert on some power play opportunities and get through that uh, Nashville Predators penalty kill. And I just wonder whether Rene is able to, is going to be able to keep up this level of play. And if he doesn't, whether the Predators will have enough to make up for that. Yeah, and I think we've seen, you know, each subsequent round, Rene's save percentage has dropped. And, you know, against the the Ducks, uh, his save percentage wasn't terrible. But I would say more than half the goals in that series that he gave up were extremely bad or at the very least stoppable. You know, goals that you shouldn't be giving up in the playoffs. Uh, I believe when the series was uh, tied at two, the Ducks like 80% of their goals were from outside the slot. So that that's the kind of thing that worries me a little bit about Rene. And then at the same time, the Predators pulled an almost no-show in that game six, and Rene was fantastic against the Ducks. So is he hot because of that one game, or is he declining as you know the overall playoff trend suggests? It, it's hard to really know what... Rene, we're going to see, whereas, you know, Matt Murray has been pretty consistently excellent his entire career, but he's coming off of an injury and he hasn't played very much. So maybe they can get at him and shake his confidence a little bit. It's such a coin toss, this uh, this goaltending matchup. I feel like I like for me, I would go with Murray because he's the guy who has longer track record of consistency, whereas Rene is kind of all over the place. And, you know, he was a great goaltender a few years ago but has kind of fallen off quite a bit he's had a great playoffs but man I, there's just something about Pecorino that I can't trust you know like he'll make these mind-bendingly awesome saves 
and then he'll go to recover a dump in and just pass it in front of his own net to the opposing team. <laughs> like he's just the ultimate adventure in goal. Yeah, I mean Jonathan Quick has been sitting at home in LA watching this postseason and thinking to himself that uh, Pekarene needs to rate in it a bit because he's been a bit out of control. I mean, it's like <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you, you you see it, just like it's like he just like did a bunch of like it just like chugged a bunch of Red Bull before the game or something. Like he just like can't chill out and stay in his crease and he's like overreacting to every single little thing and sliding away out of his crease and you know I did a podcast with Alex Pruitt last week and we talked about this but I think that uh, the the Predators blue line and defenders have done a really good job of sort of helping prevent those east-west passes through the Royal Road and 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 trying to limit the, the number of rebounds and that's really helped Rene because he's definitely been putting himself out of position Andre Pavlik and Jonathan Quick style in this especially in that Duck series quite a bit and he hasn't really been uh had to pay for it um I wonder whether the the Penguins just having more natural finishing ability and more talent around the net might be able to uh provide a, a different kind of set of challenges and problems for him in that regard I, I don't know it's gonna be fascinating to see I I'm I, I, I don't view this sort of production that he's had so far and how well he's played as some sort of a you know an indictment against analytics or us being horribly wrong. Like I, I'm actually kind of enjoying it. It's cool to see, and I don't know. I just, I'm just I'm just curious to see whether it'll be able to continue. I guess. Yeah, absolutely, and I feel like that's another one of those situations where this series is so interesting because no team in the playoffs has been better at denying like cross crease passes and uh, you know east west puck movement in the offensive zone than the Predators, and no team has been better at creating them than the Penguins. So again, we've got this huge dichotomy, like this huge split between these two groups, and we're going to see, like, it's almost like you don't want to be over dramatic or anything like that, but this series is almost like a referendum on the last couple of years of hockey, like, what wins, defense or offense? <laughs> what, 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 what direction should the NHL go? And in that respect, you almost have to hope for the Penguins because – defense is a little bit more boring but i feel like the way that the predators play defense isn't a boring style you you know what i mean like they don't trap too badly like like the senators do so i mean personally i would love to see the predators win because i'd love to see pk suban roll into the montreal children's hospital with stanley cup but is it better for hockey if the penguins win well, maybe you you could make that argument, but at the same time, you could point to the Predators and and be like, well, listen, like, first of all, that defense is all guys that can skate and do stuff with the puck, and that's you know shifting towards a more modern NHL. They have all these undersized forwards, you know, European guys they've taken a chance on and that have paid off, and and that's a good thing. And then you could point to just how David Poyle built this team and the fact that he took a bunch of chances and made some uh, big one-for-one trades and really kind of put himself on the line. And you could be like, well, maybe you know some GMs will take stock and hopefully try to be more creative by doing their jobs and and taking risks and i don't know so you you could kind of either way you look at it i I feel like both results are probably good for the nhl in the grand scheme of things because you could definitely point to certain things like that and say that you know it's it's all trending in the right direction and if people are paying attention to the right stuff then it's ultimately going to be a good thing you know what i'm I'm a fan of your perspective on this positive either way yeah you know we've got through this entire thing we haven't even mentioned uh, filipovich forsberg well, you referred to me as Mr. Forsberg once, but honestly, that uh, I I don't have my Twitter open right now because I'm devoting all my attention to you on this podcast. But there was that one one uh, legendary individual who saw me tweet a picture of something and thought I was. I guess he just glanced at his feed and thought that I was actually Philip Forsberg, 
And he, and, and, he, and he like quote tweeted it with, you know, this is my favorite tweet by an athlete of all time. And I was like, did you, did, did you just think I was Philip Forsberg? And he, and he just completely owned up. And he's like, yeah, I did. I should, I should do a better job of actually uh, looking more closely next time. And it was just great. So uh, listen, yeah, man, I'm all in on the, uh, I'm all in on the Filipovich Forsberg experience. Yeah. I, I wonder, cause like I look at what he's done this year compared to last year. Like we, we've seen a new player, in in the playoffs from him he's got like all sorts of confidence compared to last year eh? Mm -hmm. like uh man i don't know what it is about philippe forsberg that he's been so underestimated for so long but you know i remember looking at his shot attempt numbers when he was playing in the swedish league and you know his shot attempt numbers in uh the world juniors as well and i was like man why are people sleeping on this guy like i remember when he was about to be like his draft year, people were saying like, Oh, he doesn't have that much offense. And a lot of people from Sweden were saying like, Oh, he doesn't drive offense very well. He's not going to be a scorer. And then like, is there anything that's really more predictive of future offense than just looking at shot attempts in, in junior? Cause like you look at guys like Victor Arvidsson, you know, Max Pacioretty, all, all these guys that put up crazy amount of shot attempts. And it's just like, it seems like every single one of them, works out to be an NHL scorer. Like, if you've got a crazy shot attempt number, usually you're going to be a scorer. Uh, Arturi Lekkanen is another one. Uh, I feel like if you've got that, that's, like, my bat signal to be like, this is a guy you got to watch. Well, especially in major junior, uh, like, the the level of goaltending and defense being played is so bad that I'm always skeptical if you're just a guy that's scoring a bunch of goals, but it's just because you're feasting on really inferior uh, goal prevention uh like once you start playing at higher levels it's going to be much tougher to do that and and so you don't really have anything to fall back on so that's that's ultimately i agree why we why we care about shot attempts and obviously if you're taking a lot of shots it generally means you have the puck quite a bit which means you're probably doing a bunch of other you know more subtle things that are all leading to that being the case so that, that's why we that's why we care about this stuff yeah absolutely um and yep it's all just like I don't know. It's so much fun to look at this stuff and try to broadcast out. Like this is why I loved your article earlier on this season about uh, you know possible breakout players uh, next year. And I feel like you wrote that right before Burakovsky was put on the first line in Washington, and then had a series of fantastic games as well. Yeah, and another guy who um, who didn't necessarily his team didn't go far, but uh, you know Arturi Lekkonen was also a guy that I didn't really write up just because I. We have a pretty strict word li- word limit on our articles over at Sportsnet, and they uh, they wanted me to cut it a bit short. But Lekkonen was also a guy who was uh, just generating a ton of shots based on how frequently he was being utilized. And it's one of those things where all of a sudden, if you start getting relied upon more by your coach and being put in better opportunities with better teammates, and you're able to maintain anything resembling that shot rate, generally the goals will start to come. And uh, Victor Arvidsson is is you know the best example possible of that going from last year to this season. Absolutely, man. Um, all right, let's uh, let's get out of here. Um, plug some stuff. What uh, what have you what have you done lately? And are you working on any new stuff moving forward? Uh, I wrote a big uh, Stanley Cup final playoff preview for Sportsnet uh, coming up on Vice around the time of the expansion draft. I'm going to be writing a five year retrospective on Mark Bergevin's tenure with the Canadians, which I'm sure a lot of people will love to read and then hate tweet me about. (laughs) So that'll be fun. And I've always got stuff going on RDS. Uh, If you read French and if you don't, whenever an article drops, just uh, shoot me a DM. My DMs are open and I'll, I'll shoot you an English copy. 
Oh, I love, uh, you know what I love doing? I love opening up those French articles and then letting Google translate it and then just reading it in like the most broken, just hilarious translated English <laughs> of all time. Like it makes no sense, but it's the best. It, it's fantastic. I love when uh, line mates in French gets translated to minions because uh, <laughs> one of my favorite authors in hockey is Olivier Bouchard. And yep. the word that he uses for line mates always translates to minions. So whenever I'm reading like his playoff preview about like Sidney Crosby and his minions, I just, it makes me laugh so hard. And I think it's pretty accurate. I gotta be honest. Absolutely. Minions. All right, Andrew, uh, thanks for taking the time, man. And we'll, uh, we'll definitely get you back on sometime down the road. Absolutely, man. We'll talk soon. Cheers. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.